I invite you to take a little trip down memory lane with me and think back to your childhood. Um, if that's a little too far long ago, um, you're welcome to think about one of your children or a grandchildren, a nephew, niece, uh, whoever. But think of some of the things that children say. I wonder what the most common things are. I'd like to think that they're the three words, I love you. But I suspect that as important as they are to say and hear, they're edged out of top place by three other words. It's not fair. It's not fair that I have to do my homework before I can play on my games console. It's not fair that everyone else is going on the school trip and so on. I'm sure you could come up with lots of examples because if there's one thing we're all born with, it seems to be an innate sense of fairness. That's a powerful and wonderful thing because that sense of fairness, when developed into maturity, is the foundation for justice and equality and has led us to challenging many of the injustices in our world. However, our world is not perfect and neither are we. Because our innate sense of fairness tends to be somewhat egocentric, somewhat me-focused, we tend to assess fairness, as the examples from childhood demonstrate, in terms of what seems fair not only to us, but also for us. We tend to measure fairness, that is, in terms of our own wants, needs, hopes, expectations, often with little or at least secondary regard for the wants and needs of others. And unfortunately, this doesn't seem to end with our childhood. Our longing for justice, in, for a world in balance, and our attempts, however imperfect, to achieve it, is rooted in the very nature and character of our Creator God. He is incapable of injustice and unfairness, and they only feature in his vocabulary to be condemned, and they will not be a part of Jesus' kingdom when he returns. So what do we have here in our passage this morning? Well, it's the culmination of Jesus' teaching ministry and the final part of a conversation with his disciples, which began at the start of chapter 24, where he's talking to them about the future and the end times. Earlier in Matthew 25, we've got the parable of the ten virgins, which warns us to be ready for his coming. We've got the parable of the talents, which tells us that we're accountable for how we use the talents we've been given. And now finally, what some call the parable of the sheep and the goats. Except it's not really a parable as such, but more a vision of the future, a glimpse into a future heavenly scene and the way in which Jesus' rule of justice will be exercised. There is much that theologians disagree on with regard to this passage, and we have neither the time uh, nor am I qualified uh, to get into the nuances contained here. Uh, in fact, I sometimes think that I have two children both studying or studied theology who are far more qualified on these things than I am. 
However, there are some things that we can learn or be reminded of. The first of which is that there are two common misinterpretations or misapplications of this passage. So let's deal with those. The first is that our salvation and the resulting reward and inheritance are based on what we do and how we treat others. We might call this justification by works. The second misinterpretation or misapplication uh, is that the main thrust of the proclamation of the gospel must be through social action. Here, such advocates would say, is a clear manifesto to care for the poor with no need for awkward theology, for by serving the poor, we're serving Christ in them. Whilst Jesus certainly identified with the poor and marginalised and held them close to his heart, to subscribe to either view runs counter to the whole of Scripture and doesn't sit well alongside the image of Jesus establishing his kingdom rule and exercising God's judgment, as we read here. Paul, the apostle, puts the argument to rest in his letter to the Ephesians. We read in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it's clear, therefore, that faith, that true faith will express itself in good works, in a life that strives to follow God's will. <clears throat> so while salvation is by grace, there is no way for us to be right with God except by trusting in Jesus' death for our sins. We will be judged on the basis of what we have done. A message that James reiterates in chapter 2 of his letter, where he speaks of faith and deeds going hand in hand. So what about this passage? What does it say to us? What does it tell us? Well, there are some certainties here. The first is that Jesus will return. There's no if, it's quite clear. In verse 31, it says when. And it won't be a quiet affair. He's going to return in triumph with all the angels. Not just a great company like the one that appeared to the shepherds when his birth was announced. It's going to be the whole heavenly host. And then he'll take his rightful place on his throne. And all the peoples of all the nations will be gathered before him and he will pass judgment. We then got this imagery of the sheep and the goats, which whilst serving the purpose of describing two distinct groups, would also have been very familiar to the disciples listening to Jesus and the predominantly Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel. In the Middle East to this day, sheep and goats regularly graze together and it cannot even be quite difficult to tell them apart but at night they need to be separated so that the goats, being less hardy, can be kept warm. This image of the sheep and goats is used to denote a distinction between good and bad, and the placing of the sheep on the right will be recognised as a place of power and honour. So what are the criteria used to make this judgement for this division into sheep and goats? Jesus tells them that it is the treatment meted out to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those in need of clothes, 
the sick and those in prison. The confusion of both the groups, the sheep and the goats, as to when the opportunity to do this presented itself to them, when did it happen, is expressed in verses 37 to 38 and later in verse 44. And Jesus answers this confusion when he says in verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So what does he mean by brothers and sisters? Well, if we look back in Matthew's Gospel, back to chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, we read, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here I my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The prevailing view, therefore, amongst the commentators is that the basis for the division into sheep and goats will be how Jesus' disciples and the gospel they proclaim has been treated. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, as we read in Matthew 10, verse 40, he said, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. We also have that phrase in that verse 40 of the least of these, uh, and it's a term which indicates uh, one of low status, a reminder to us and the church as a whole of the importance of caring for those most on the margins of our communities. So what should our response to this be? Well, it's certainly not one that is based on hope of reward or fear of the alternative. We do not do the things we do or ought to do out of worry about possibly entertaining an angel, as we thought about last week, maybe act, uh, angel acting as some kind of mystery shopper or undercover boss who will reveal all that we've done or not done. Whilst the nations will be judged on how they've acted to Jesus' followers, Jesus affirms that true disciples will love and care for one another, and especially the least and insignificant amongst us. For in so doing, we unconsciously serve Christ. Nor does this absolve us of a more general mercy that Christians must demonstrate toward all in need. The Apostle Paul clearly states the principle. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's Galatians 6, verse 10. So we'll be held accountable for our actions and behaviours. If we know and love the Lord Jesus and seek to follow him, then we've been given a new life a kingdom life empowered, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which produces evidence in transformed speech, thoughts and actions, and our very character as Jesus' followers. And it is for this new life and how we choose to use it that we will have to give account. Jesus gives us in this passage some very real, very practical examples of what good works or good deeds might be in his kingdom. Uh, they need little contextualising for our day. Indeed, they're probably more relevant now than they were pre-pandemic and pre-energy crisis. For many of us, much of what is being said here 
is an integral part of what we understand it means to follow Christ as his disciple. It already impacts the way we think, the way we behave towards others, the way we use our money, the way we pray, and the way we spend our time. Although it never hurts for us to come before God and ask if he wants us to do some re-evaluating, particularly as we find ourselves moving from one stage of life to the next. Part of our response as a church is our open house initiative, which starts tomorrow. I'm sure we could do more, but we're making a start with this. If you're able, please do volunteer some of your time to be part of this. There are a number of ways to be involved, and the details of that are in our e-news. If you need to understand more about it and experience it, why not drop in for a coffee one day this week? Or even better, bring someone with you and enjoy a coffee. To finish, let me quote from Michael Green and his Bible Speaks Today commentary on Matthew's Gospel. He writes, Jesus looks for his servants to be watchful, holy, ready to meet him at any time, faithful in the use of their gifts and opportunities, and above all, full to overflowing with his self-forgetful and self-sacrificing love. Amen. Amen.